Join us for the Criterion Institute podcast as Joy Anderson, a global thought leader in business and social change, leads us through a series of discussions, interviews, frameworks, rants, and reframes that will help you better understand how to use finance as a tool for transformative systems change. Welcome. I am Joy, and this is the Criterion Institute podcast. In this episode, the three segments that we've pulled together to make this week's montage look at field-building organizations. So field-building organizations are focused on the field. Um, So think of field of sociology or the field of gender lens investing or the medical profession as a field. Thinking about the field of activities, what's actually going on in that field, the field of people and organizations, who needs to be connected in what ways, and a field of ideas. Uh, What are the ideas that are driving the development of the field? And so field building is going to be a theme throughout this podcast. And in these segments, in this episode, we look at some of the power dynamics around field building. So the first segment, we might call an ode to field building organization, looks at the context around being a field building organization. It's ridiculously difficult to fundraise because you're not the ones doing, you're the ones connecting. So how do you raise money? How do you struggle through the identity of finding your place in the world when you're the one organizing how people think about the world? The second segment is a very important practice in field building, which is naming. It's the power of names. And I want to say, for first off, not the power of acronyms, although fields tend to reproduce problematically way too many acronyms, but it's looking at the power of naming. And we'll look at a particular case study in Criterion's history around medical debt and thinking about the power of the name. What do we call things? And as we change how we understand them, How do we rename them? The third segment is looking at teaching and the importance where so many of us sit in a position where we are teachers. And in this segment, we're really going to look at the need to ask permission to teach. We often confuse the act of teaching with influence. We go out and particularly in in work around influencing people to take up activities like gender lens investing, we ask that people come to training where we're not actually teaching because nobody actually wants to learn yet. We're doing it to convince people to want to learn at some point, right? A training, quote unquote, that really is an exercise in convincing people to care. So how do we introduce this practice of ensuring that we have permission to teach before we put in the effort to teach? So with that, three segments tied together in one episode focused on field building and its practices. This segment might be called an ode to field building. One of the things that's been a constant in in my career, at least, is that I've worked in 
early fields. You might also call them early markets, but in places where new kinds of sense-making was happening, new kinds of activity was being formed, people were coming together in new ways because it was needed, right? So we can think about the field of impact investing. I was, you know, early days, part of that. You know, Criterion's often credited for naming the field of gender lens investing, launching the field of gender lens investing. There's many other fields. You can think about the field of sociology. I've had nothing to do with that, but field of history. I'm a historian by training, right? So there's fields. Fields can organize a set of ideas in common language, common frameworks. So again, coming back to history as a field, there's a logic to what it means to study history and the ways in which, why is this so difficult? Why did I choose this one? Fields organize three things. They can organize ideas and create the common language and frameworks that make sense of things. So in gender lens investing, for example, the definition of gender lens investing and the fights around that definition would be a idea that the field is shaping. The second is it's a loosely organized set of people and organizations. You think about people who work in a field. I work in the field of medicine. I don't, but other people do, obviously. Um, and so you might think about the people who make up a field, the field of impact investing, the field of gender lens investing, other emerging fields of sort of social entrepreneurship as a field, different fields of people. And then they come together in delightful things like conferences. And the third is a field, particularly in impact investing, a field has organized a set of activities. And so a lot of the work in, in fields that are focused on innovative finance is on moving capital, structuring deals. How do you actually stimulate a set of activities and spur forward those kinds of activities? So a field of ideas, a field of activities, a field of people and institutions. And so the work of field building is too literally organize those things, right? Bring human beings together and have them see each other and celebrate that they are in the same project together. They're engaged in a similar endeavor. Or you're mapping the activities. Who's moving what money where and what does it look like, right? So you're looking at kind of a set of activities and we draw these lovely maps of how fields are building um, based on the sort of transactions and who's moving money where. And then you think about the endless debates around the ideas, the frameworks, the tools that will make sense, a harmonization of a new set of metrics that make sure that we're all thinking in similar ways. So all of that work is, well, let's face it, pretty meta. It's not the doing it's the organizing of the doing. It's not being the person leading the organization. It's organizing the people who lead the organizations. It's not 
you know, you're not necessarily individual practitioner, but they're the one making sense of the ideas that would frame how everybody comes together. So I've lived in this world of abstraction for a very long time. I think some of us are just hardwired to think at this, at sort of this level of abstraction. So the challenges with field building, though, the, the sort of playing this role of field building is that at some level, you're looking out and trying to organize activity that somebody else is doing. And so one challenge that is perennially difficult is who funds that, right? Everybody wants there to be a field. There wants there to be a way that people can come together, but it's very difficult to get that work funded. And this is you know, sort of notorious across fields because it's the, the value is put on the doing not the organizing and the concrete, I am going to be an investor and move this capital is much more concrete than I'm going to be the one who organizes a set of investors to shape their thinking. So the fundraising behind it is has always been quite difficult. But I actually think the challenge that, that we've confronted more than even the fundraising piece is the power dynamics around who is doing this sense-making, who is defining those boundaries, who is saying what activity counts and what doesn't. Um, I remember there was a moment early on in innovative finance where, you know, so maybe 20 years ago or so, where there was this distinct challenge put out to say, we need to separate high growth entrepreneurial venture activities from community-based mechanisms of lending, sort of the community-based finance that had existed for centuries, actually. And the kind of that slow and pedestrian and not exciting, we need to show that this can be fast-growing. So a lot of the early definitions of impact investing, for example, were literally an effort to distinguish themselves from community-based investing. That has actually had some fairly significant ramifications in terms of who saw themselves as part of this project. So impact investing became very driven by venture capital and separated from the kind of work that, that happens in community finance. Intentionally, by the people sitting in the field building role and saying who's in and who's out. So this work of unpacking, right, one of the mystiques of field builders is that they are intended to be the neutral conveners. They're intended to be the people who don't have a dog in the fight. They're just building the field for others to participate in. You know, they're just hosting a conference that's really driven by the, by the participants that are you know, speaking on the panels, and we're just organizing the conference. Well, no, 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 no. You're not just organizing the conference, you're deciding who speaks and for how long and on what stage and who's privileged and who's not. It's not a neutral activity to do this. But at some level, part of the tension in field building is your role is to be of service to a field. Your role is to help make sense of a set of activities that you may not be participating in. 
fully. You might not be the venture fund, but you're helping to organize this. And so part of the challenge is how do we call forth the positionality of that? The fact that even if you are convening others, that is a political act. Who is convened, how, and what is discussed actually has a significant amount of power. And so at some point, Criterion, and and this was really a, a push that I led, stepped back from naming ourselves as a pure field building organization because at some point we had a point of view. We wanted to shape the field of gender lens investing, of innovative finance, of all these projects working on sort of different approaches to using finance to, to create social change. We wanted to make sure that they were addressing questions of power and therefore could no longer be the neutral conveners even if that was a mystique, right? Even when we were doing this, we had a point of view. And so we stepped out of that to really say, we need to privilege this point of view. We need to name this point of view. We need to be transparent about this point of view because field building, while it is actually an incredibly valuable set of activities to bring together, to help make sense, to show the activity, to hold it up, to stimulate these new approaches. It's incredibly valuable. It's also political and it has a point of view and we need to keep paying attention to that and owning it. So no matter how hard it is, how important it is, we also need to hold a light to it and make sure that it's accountable. Names matter, right? I mean, it's probably a fundamental truth. Anybody working in branding understands that how you name something matters, what you call it, what it evokes for people. Anybody who's been a parent knows that there's a lot of thought that goes into what you name your kid. I do actually love these moments now, though, where what you name your kid day one is more likely to emerge into a different name as they move forward. We uh, named our daughter Julia, and she's really reclaimed her name as Lee. And I love that that's part of her discovering what name she should have. And I think she still acknowledges that her formal name is, is Julia, maybe. But there's another name that really means more to her that captures who she is in the world and that discovery. So there is a process of naming and even more important, renaming. Because I think often we name something and then we get stuck on it. So I will say Criterion has had three names. We started actually as Criterion Consulting and then we became Criterion Ventures. That's when we were launching a bunch of companies. And then about seven years ago, we became Criterion Institute. So maybe that's not a radical example of naming. Another example that comes to mind, though, is for about five years or so, we were focused on the issue of how much personal bankruptcy in the U.S. was caused by medical debt, astronomical numbers. And so we started with a project that was about medical debt. But as many of us know, solving for debt is problematic. We were wandering around like, how do you solve for debt? Well, once somebody's in debt, there's not that much you can do to solve for debt. There are some things. And so we were playing with those. But framing it as the problem of medical debt led us to a reframe, a rename, 
we eventually started calling the project Healthcare Uncovered because it wasn't really about medical debt. It was about the uncovered costs of healthcare that were causing people to take on debt to pay for them. And then I actually remember being, I was in a conversation with somebody at the Brookings Institute and was talking to them about this work, Uncovered Costs of Healthcare, and a program we called Healthcare Uncovered. And they said, oh, it's interesting. We're working in, I believe it was Uganda, on getting an insurance market into a health finance system that's largely a cash market. You're trying to rationalize a cash market in what is actually a predominantly insurance market. And therefore, a new name for the project emerged as the cash market in healthcare. And so that naming from medical debt to healthcare uncovered to the cash market in healthcare was an intentional process of renaming to be able to show the development of the idea and capture what it meant now. I find sometimes we get stuck on the name. We get stuck on the thing that it was called. And we don't necessarily allow the name to evolve to be able to capture new things. So another example is when we started the field of gender lens investing with you know so many other people, our program was actually called Women Effect Investments. That was the name of the program at Criterion that later went on to be a, the name of a, an initiative that Suzanne Beagle launched. But we called in the field, out in the world, we called the field gender lens investing. And I'm glad we did because it mattered that we named the field as about gender rather than about women because it created an openness and eventually we disbanded our term of looking at women effect and really focused on a gender lens and thinking about the ways in which framing it as having a gender lens in investing kept things open to make sure we were really talking about gender, which is all genders and not just women. So I'm glad we stuck with that name. We're now sort of exploring, not a new name for the field, but a new idea of a feminist financial imagination. It's not going to replace gender lens investing. You know, there's now a sort of tussle going on between is it gender smart or gender lens, and everybody's got their own play for what these different words mean. But in the end, in the work of field building, names matter. My caveat here is acronyms do not I actually have a practice within Criterion that the acronym of gender lens investing is sort of like he who will not be named. I try not to ever say the three letters that would start gender lens investing because that as an acronym is meaningless. We don't have enough power as organizations. A friend of mine who worked actually at Mattel on Barbies for a long time, used to, which he made a transition into nonprofit consulting, working on branding. I remember her saying really clearly, very, 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 very few nonprofits have enough power in their brand to have an acronym matter. YMCA, YWCA, AARP, World Wildlife Fund, WWF, some of these actually do, but in general, we don't. And the power of saying, I'm going to invest with a gender lens, or I'm going to analyze gender as part of my investment process, makes these words active. 
they have them still grounded in real words, not acronyms. And so I think especially when we're trying to take on issues of power, shortening something to an acronym hides the words and words have power. Names have power. And thinking through how we let names change as we discover different meanings and then celebrating that and the discoveries that go along with it. On my first day as a teacher in New York City Public Schools, a theater guy who I think was sort of subbing in as a teacher for a period of time, gave me an invaluable piece of advice. He said, think of a teacher that you liked and pretend to be them. So I thought of Fran Hedeman, who was my theater teacher when I was in high school, and I pretended to be here for the next eight years or so. I don't know if I ever became a great teacher, but I remembered that feeling of being a student with a teacher that delighted in my learning. I have huge respect for my, uh, my best friend is a fourth grade teacher. She's remarkable. Uh, I think if I went back now, I would pretend to be her. Even though I was teaching high school, I'm not sure that would have quite worked, but I would pretend to be her any day. For in all of our conversations, the moments of glory for her as a teacher are always when she shows up fully herself, her hysterical, witty, clever self, and successfully invites her students to their own adventure in learning. She makes it fun for them. She makes it their journey. And the reason I'm saying all of this, because I think sometimes two things one is I think we confuse teaching with influence. And the second is we make teaching a performance of our own expertise. So back to influence, right? I, th I think there are these moments when you just know that the teacher standing in front, and, and now we're all adults, right? We're learning in classrooms that, you know, some technical assistance setting where, you know, adult learners are frankly really difficult, right? It's hard to teach adults. But there's these moments when I feel like I am being influenced. I am being told I should think differently and not just being taught that it really is teaching with an agenda. And I would say in the field of gender lens investing, there is a lot of teaching with an agenda. And it, it's not a bad agenda, right? A lot of the technical assistance that happens where we're supporting impact investors or investors to take up a gender lens, the technical assistance, it can be almost entirely a making the business case. It's not teaching a skill. It's not imparting knowledge about a gender analysis. It's convincing them that they should think about gender as important. It is teaching as influence. And at some point, while there's lots of ways in which I and others seek to influence, I think it's tough we confuse teaching with influence. Because at some level, you should influence people, have them want to learn, and then they will learn so much better if they have bought into what they are learning 
versus I can't tell you how many times we've been invited in to run a training and I find out halfway through the training when I get pulled aside by somebody who's leading the training and say, actually, so Fred in the corner, what I'm really looking for you to do is to change how Fred thinks about X, Y, and Z. And if you could get him to do this instead, I'm like, I thought I was just going to teach them some cool stuff about gender patterns in the region in which they're working, which would make them better investors. No, what I'm actually here is to convince them to put their biases aside and think about gender differently. Mm, that sucks. Anyway, so so one is when we have teaching masquerade as influence, at some point, let's just be honest about what it is, right? And not sort of manipulate people into, this is a training program that's actually a training program that's supposed to change your mind about things. People need to be invited to change their minds. They need to decide that they're going to do that and then let's use our energy. Because the reality is, if I think I am teaching, I set up things to be an open-ended conversation where we can explore different pieces. And then halfway through, I find out that people aren't actually bought into it. And that's not safe for them or for me. Because all of a sudden, everything I say is questioned. Oh, if you haven't ever been in this circumstance, it's super fun when all of a sudden the guy who you're supposed to be teaching how to have a gender analysis within their investment says, but can you help me understand my wife? Because I think what we're really talking about is just how we talk to each other as men and women. So I think it's really great. Could you just help me? I'm like, no, I cannot help you understand your wife. That is not what I am here to do. We were going to learn how to do a gender analysis. Not like some women are from Mars, men are from Venus. Well, I think it's the reverse. Anyway, that's not what I'm doing. All right. So first of all, figuring out when are we teaching? Because that is such a glorious experience. And when are we influencing? The second is sometimes it feels like teaching becomes a performance of expertise. It's to show what the teacher knows. Well, here I am, you know, hosting a podcast that's largely talking about what I know. But there's a moment in teaching when the performance, the knowledge of the teacher becomes the point, not your ability to learn but my legitimacy, the expertise that I have. And in some ways, that both is because the person who wants to learn questions the expertise of the teacher. Oh, sweetie, you don't really have very much experience in investing, do you? Well, I'm not really sure that you actually have what it takes to teach me anything. Those are fun moments. Or on the flip side, the person who's babbling on about, I've seen so many presentations that were supposed to teach people about investing that were basically, let me tell you all the things that you don't understand, make it seem like a really distant, bizarre, complicated sport that you would never want to participate in because it's all just too complicated for you, sweetie. But let me show you how much I know about investing by my trying to teach you about it. Teaching should not be about what you know. It should be about what you can invite others to learn. Which led me to this truth of the need to ask permission to teach. And actually only teach when we have permission. We can invite people to learn, but until they take up that invitation, we cannot effectively teach. 
Nobody wants to learn about power dynamics if you have not agreed to learn. That's just manipulation. That's just influence. And if there's a set of actors, I mean, we're often trying to have people who don't work in finance feel invited in to learn about finance. But if they don't say yes to that invitation, if they haven't asked to learn, then we're just being condescending. So let's take the time and ask permission to teach and then delight in those moments where we can help facilitate somebody's learning because they want it to go on that journey. To learn more about our work, visit us at criterioninstitute.org. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Your reviews help our podcast reach a wider audience. Thanks for listening.